everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. We are going to continue this morning in our study in the book of Acts. We are finding ourselves this morning in Acts 13, so if you brought your Bible, you can turn there and just hold your finger in it. This has been a pretty incredible ride so far. The reason why we wanted to study Acts was really twofold. One, uh, we started this series right after Easter, and there is this sense of like, Jesus died on the cross, he was raised again the next day, he taught for a little bit, and then he, was, he ascended up to heaven. And then there's this like, and then what happened? And, and that's the book of Acts. So some of that was just to continue the story and to find ourselves in the current of that story as a church now in the 21st century. Part of it, too, for me was also, I think, hearing in my own inner dialogue in several friends as a few years ago we were going through COVID asking the same question. What's the point of church? Like, should I go back when churches are open again? Is that a place where I really want to be? It's kind of nice to have Sunday. What is the point of what we're doing here? And as we study Acts, I think we start to find, man, there is a reason why this newfangled idea called the church got going in the first place. And if we're going to locate ourselves in that story, it is so helpful to go back and listen to the origin story. Today, we're going to be jumping into really three chapters. Chapter 13, 14, and 15 really are driving towards this finale in chapter 15. And, and this finale is really uncovering this major problem that this early church is having. At this point in its history, the church has been almost entirely Jewish. And the problem is that there's all these non-Jewish people that seem to want to be at the party. And so as we get into 13, 14, and then 15, they're going to be uncovering, how does this work? Like, there's people who don't belong with us that it, we need to figure out how to get them here with us. But it's, it's complicated. How does this happen? So today, I'm delighted. We're, we're going to be taking a look just at one of the key characters. He's actually been there quite a lot of the way so far in Acts, but we haven't spent a lot of time getting to know him. And I think in knowing him, we'll understand a lot of what's going on in these next three chapters. Uh, you might know him. His name is Joseph. And if you're like, I've, I might have read Acts a couple times. I don't recall a Joseph. Uh, you know, Joe. Um, he's just kind of around. He, he grew up on a vineyard. He's from a family of winemakers. Does this ring a bell? It probably shouldn't. You know, Joseph from Acts, one of the main characters. You may know him, if you've read this part of Scripture before, by his nickname, which is Barnabas. Now, Barnabas is this incredible character. And if we're going to understand Barnabas, we have to understand his backstory. So, as we dive in today, I want you to, like, loosen up a little bit. You're going to need to engage your imagination. Whatever you do for an occupation, I'm going to ask you to set it aside and I want you to fully immerse yourself in the world of a winemaker. Every day you grow up and you, or you, you wake up and you look out your window and you see vines up and ascending the rolling hills all around your property. That in the springtime you know this is our time to prune and to graft. And that as soon as that process begins for the next several months until the last bottle is poured in and sold, 
It is hard work in front of you. I think to help get us into this mindset, there is uh, a group of folks up in British Columbia who have really started to form a really cool community around winemaking. And just a little video that they produced, I'm like, that gives a pretty good picture of what life would have been like for Barnabas growing up. Check out, as you get into the mindset of a winemaker, what is this life? A great wine is one that when you smell it, there's a little bit of that story that's coming back to you. And then when you actually taste it, it's that balance. And when you swallow, you just sit back and then you just, wow. Wine is not the end product of some industrial process. Wine is produce from a farm. Everything that I take note of in the wine can always be related straight back to what happened in the vineyard during that vintage. If you're working the land, you're pretty much not home from sunrise to sundown. I have to stay here or I have to get up early because we're farming, we're picking, we're pressing. And it has been a constant challenge to get a balance between the mom, the woman and the winemaker. My family deserves a gold medal, you know, for putting up with my lifestyle. It's pretty obvious to the Canadian wine consumer that there's not a lot of places where you can actually make wine in Canada. And those few places that do grow vinifera grapes and make premium wines, it is challenging. A lot of things can go wrong at every time of the winemaking process. And then we have to nurture those babies, those little barrels for sometime a year, sometime 24 months. My day is so varied. I don't think that I know of any vocation where you have to do so many things. The decisions start on you know, planting the grapes and the decisions end basically on releasing the wine uh, ready for sale. That guy that has like seven balls and juggling, that's us. <laughs> A good winemaker has to be honest because you can't get away with shortcuts. You've got one shot at everything. You start pruning and then everything along the line, you have to do it to adapt to what Mother Nature is giving you, but there's only one way you can go back. And the same for picking. If you've got one shot at picking date, if you wait too long or you pick too early, then that's it. You have to wait another year. That's a winemaking lifestyle, that's a farming lifestyle. That's, um, that's what has to be done. You know, because if it's not done, um, we're out of business. As soon as you think you know it all along comes another vintage. Every vintage that I've worked here has produced a substantially different wine. You know, it's a bit frustrating because you think, God, <laughs> I've got to figure this out again. But on the other hand, intellectually, it's really interesting. There's no recipe, so you cannot sit back on what you've learned the year before. You always have to make that next step. I learned something, I'm going to mix it up, and I'm going to learn something more. What I love about my job is the challenge. It's, it's not boring, so. The beautiful thing about wine is that slight imperfections, and I'm not talking about faults here, but slight imperfections can actually make the wine even more perfect. I love winemaking because I love taking all those different parts of what the vineyard is giving me and I love to create that little painting in my head. What's good is never boring. There's always something different and then we get to create something different every year. Fresh, refreshing, pristine, unspoilt. 
All of these words describe the fruit from the trees. They describe the wines that we're growing and, and drinking. These are all qualities that define British Columbia wines. Suddenly, if you're thinking to yourself, I'm going to quit my job on Monday and go buy a vineyard. Uh, come find me after service. I'll get your number. I'll get us all connected to each other, and we'll do it together. It'll be really fun. This is the life that Barnabas has grown up with. Uh, Barnabas grew up on the island nation of Cyprus in the middle of the Mediterranean to a really wealthy Jewish family. He would have grown up as a young kid walking out with his dad in the early mornings, pruning and grafting new vines into their grapes that had probably be, had been in their family for generations at that point. He would have been a kid that would have grown up with chickens running around, probably milking goats or sheep that would have been around. He's a farmer's kid. But there's so much more that we then begin to understand about his worldview and what he sees in the world around him as we, be, as we understand that that's where he grew up. If we're going to understand these next few chapters, we have to understand this part of Barnabas' story. So, I want to begin painting a picture of Barnabas for you. Again, keep engaging your imagination. We have some first century photography for you um, from Barnabas. You have uh, in the corner over here, you have Barnabas the Jedi with the lightsaber um, getting ready to go crazy. Up on the top, you have a very perturbed, annoyed Barnabas. I don't know that, like, what they were trying to capture with that particular icon. Uh, down in the middle, you've got uh, him with a, a box of box wine, which is really kind of fun. Um, and then I, I think actually this, this one in the bottom right um, is pretty close to the colors actually, even on the screen. I, I, picture that. He probably had a pretty killer tan. He spent a lot of time outside. This is a dude who amidst being outside and all the work that he would continue to go on to do with his life, he'd work everywhere that he went while he enjoyed sharing about the story of Jesus with people. I think that one captures him pretty well. He's Middle Eastern. Can you picture his face? Those dark eyebrows, those deep, penetrating eyes. He's Jewish. He wears tassels under his cloak. He's got a beard for sure. And his nickname, Barnabas, his name's Joseph, but they nicknamed him Barnabas, which literally means son of encouragement. Like everywhere this guy went, I just picture this big Middle Eastern face beaming at people around. Can you picture him? As he grew up on this farm, he would actually later to become known in the Catholic and Orthodox circles as the patron saint of vineyards. That's how critical this was to his story. And when he was probably about a teenager, an early teenager, his family, wealthy Jewish, sent him to go study with the best rabbi in the world at the time. His name was Gamaliel. This is basically like getting your letter from Hogwarts to go hang out with Dumbledore all the time. This is Gamaliel's story. And it was likely that he was living in Jerusalem, likely several years into his time studying at university with Gamaliel when another rabbi came through town. And that rabbi's name was a guy named Jesus of Nazareth. According to church history, Barnabas was one of the 72 disciples that spent time with Jesus, that was sent out to do miracles and to share with people what God was doing in the story of the Jewish people it's highly likely that he was there that day of Pentecost in Acts 2 that we covered a while ago. And if all of this is stuff that you're like, I don't know these stories, that's okay. 
Because where we jump into Acts, as we've been studying it here, here's what we've seen in the text that maybe we haven't spent time doing, but continue to give us a brilliant thumbnail sketch of who is this guy. In Acts 4, a sermon several weeks ago about this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, they sold a piece of property and donated some of what they gave, but said they gave all of it. It was a major problem. Tucked in right before that story is the redemptive story about a Levite from Cyprus, whose name was Joseph, who sold his land and gave the proceeds to the church. I, I won't read some of these verses that we'll put up on the screen, but if you want to scan them, I just want you to know it's been right there in the text the whole time. And when we understand now that little nugget of story, given his background, we begin to understand what was it that Barnabas sold? He, he sold his land. He sold his family's vineyard that had been in the family for generations. That's a major sacrifice. To be a wine producer, especially out of Cyprus, this is a highly lucrative family business. This is what had made his family so wealthy, and he sold it. Why? I think if you would ask Barnabas, I would assume he would say something along the lines of, I just have a new family now, and we needed something different out of the farm than just wine. Can you picture him? In Acts 9, we catch up to him again. There was this young upstart kid whose name was Saul. And Saul had been persecuting the church, killing Christians on purpose. Everybody knew about him. Something wild happened to him. And several weeks ago, we heard the story of Paul on a road to Damascus, meeting Jesus and realizing he is the Son of God. And when Saul spends some time trying to figure out what does all this mean in Damascus, he makes his first trip back to Jerusalem where the church has really been located so far. And nobody will talk to him. Like everybody's terrified of this guy. This is an assassin of Christians. And in 927, we find out there's one person who vouches for him. The cool thing about Saul is that he also studied at Hogwarts. He was probably Slytherin house, but he hung out with Gamaliel too. And I think there was something in Barnabas that he would look at Saul and go, you're a younger version of myself. I was pretty suspect of this, but the way that you're talking about Jesus, I think maybe actually something did happen. Hey, you guys, we should listen to him. Something has gone on in the life of Saul. I love that he'd be willing to risk that way, that he would wait, that he would hold out. He was clearly a leader in the church at this time. And so uh, and as we get into Acts 11, there's one other critical thing that happens. The church is expanding. There's actually this massive church that's starting to take off in Antioch, which is a little bit north of Jerusalem. And the leaders at the church in Jerusalem see this as a major problem, not because there's another church starting, but because there's people that are going to this church that are not Jewish. And they're, they're like, if you really want to skip ahead to chapter 15, the biggest problem that's coming up over and over again is they're not circumcised, which if you don't know what that means, ask your mom. Um, but there's, there's a major problem that it's such a blended group of people that are coming together. And as the church in Jerusalem is trying to figure out what do we do, I think we need to send somebody up there just to go check things out. Barnabas, why don't you go up there? So you can picture this leathery-skinned, smiley, Middle Eastern Jewish man, tassels and all, walking into this church in Antioch for the first time, seeing uncircumcised pagans and Jewish people coming together and doing what we're doing right now. Talking about the word, 
worshiping and praying together. And it just blows his hair back. He's so excited. And he doesn't know what to do. All he knows is that he's heard that one other person met, had a conversation with Jesus where Jesus said, you're going to be my representative to go talk to all these non-Jewish people. You're going to be the one that I'm going to begin accomplishing all this through. And there was a guy, it was a guy named Saul, his old buddy from Slytherin House. So he calls up Saul and he says, hey, I've got this church. There's these people that are there. I don't know what to do with them. We don't know what to do with them. But Jesus said that he was going to use you to do this work. I need you to come to Antioch with me. Just to set some timeline, it has been 10 years since Paul had that experience on the road to Damascus. 10 years since Barnabas vouched for him at the church in Jerusalem. And 10 years later, Barnabas is going, I got to go find my friend. I think this is the work that God called him to do. I think I'm seeing it right here. And he pulls him back up into Antioch with him. We get this little picture, Luke, who's the writer of Acts, just says this beautiful phrase about Barnabas. Chapter 11, verse 24. Barnabas, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. It's not a bad thing to have written about you. Especially if it goes in the Bible. I mean, that's pretty good. Like, I think he's doing a good job. What kind of man do you picture? What's in your head? What would he look like today? He's a farmer theologian, highly trained in winemaking, highly trained in scripture. He seems to listen to God and consistently trust that he has a plan. He'd be a farmer type today, probably dirty jeans, work boots, a t-shirt underneath a flannel, tan from working outside, he'd probably be fond of hats. <laughs> Would you want to have coffee with him? He'd probably spend it laughing, being a great listener. He would occasionally smile as he commented on the flavor notes of his Ethiopian light roast and often would bring conversation back around to where he'd been seeing God at work in and around him and probably in and around you. He'd probably invite you for coffee again only after encouraging you to the point where you weren't sure if he was a cheerleader in college and he'd be voraciously interested in how you had been growing and what you had been learning since last time. He'd pray for you when it was time to go and would probably text you a couple of days later with a, hey, you've been on my mind. Just wanted to know, you to know I've been praying for you. That kind of a note. Something that would make you both smile and think about who you could maybe send a note like that to. And you catch yourself being swept up into a better version of yourself just from being around him. Barnabas. Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Now that you know him, Let's read the next story. Now, at the church in Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the ruler, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them, and they sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and for there they went to Cyprus. Ah, And then they arrived at Salamis, and they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John Mark also to assist them. 
We're not going to spend time on this. John Mark is Barnabas' cousin, which is kind of cool. John Mark also traditionally, uh, and I think there's really good evidence for this. You've probably heard of him too. He wrote a gospel called Mark, which is kind of narcissistic in my opinion, but they're they're related. They're, They're cousins. This is the first missionary journey as it's recorded in, in the text. What's going on in this trip? First off, this is a powerhouse team at this church out in Antioch. If this is the first satellite campus, they've got a killer leadership team going on at this place. You've got Barnabas. You've got a guy who grew up and is friends with Herod. You've got Saul. This is an incredible group of people. And when we find them, what is it that we find them doing? It seems like we know that there's prophets and there's teachers there. There's really good teaching happening at this church. But it's also very clear about some other things that they're doing. They're fasting together. They're praying together. And when they're praying, it's not just here's all the things we have to pray for, amen. But it really seems like their style of prayer is, God, we're listening. What is it that you want? they would do that together. And in the midst of doing that, I don't know how long it had gone on without hearing very much that all of a sudden it just seems that what they hear is, hey, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I've called them. And as a whole community of people coming together, they go, oh, okay, we've now got a word. We've got something that God wants us to do. Do you know the surety that you move with when it's not just here's a good strategic idea? Or here's something we came up with, or here was an opportunity that just got tossed our way, but like a God told us to do this. It's so exciting. I mean, to be at this church at this point in time, ah, it would just be so fun. Typically, as they would go on these journeys, they had a formula that they would follow. They'd roll into town, they would find the closest synagogue, the Jewish church, just where the Jewish folks hung out. And they would tell them about Jesus, his death, his resurrection, that he's the son of God, the Messiah, the chosen one that God sent to save the world. And their hope clearly in the text was that this would be what would happen, that the Jewish folks would go, oh my gosh, this is amazing. From the very beginning of our cultural heritage from Abraham, we were told that all of the nations of the world would be blessed through us. It's happening right now. This is the best news ever. We got to go tell the world. We've been waiting for this for thousands of years. That was their hope. Generally, what happened is they would roll into town, they'd go to the synagogue, they'd share. Here in chapter 13, the first time they share, people are like, this is really interesting. The second time they share, they're like, let's kill these fools. Like, it doesn't go very well for them in the long run. And they stay as long as they can, but the formula really ends with them saying, we've got to leave town. They're going to kill us but not without a twinkle in their eye. Because Barnabas is a wine farmer. He grew up on a vineyard. He's a vintner. And you don't plant a vine in the ground that you don't intend to tend to. And so every time that they leave, it was always with a sense of, we'll be back. This journey, we'll put it up on a map on the screen. I think it's just helpful to see it. So Jerusalem would be just barely south of the photo here, but they start in Antioch. This is where the church is, and they just head to the coast. Really, that's all that's going on there in Seleucia. And then from there, give me those arrows, Corb. Then they head to Salamis and Paphos. This is the island of Cyprus, Barnabas's hometown. 
I just, I love that detail that for Barnabas, he's, he must just be so excited. Like, I get to go back to the home digs and share with everybody that I grew up with the most important story that has changed my life. He just must have loved that. As soon as they finish in Paphos, they get kicked out of there. It doesn't go very well there, and they head up to Perga. Now, this is where something really important happens. John Mark, Barnabas' cousin, the guy who's going to end up writing a gospel, just ditches them. He leaves. We're not really totally sure why, but I would assume after having been in a handful of synagogues and having your life threatened, John Mark's like, water's a little hot, I'm getting out. Like, I'm not doing this anymore. Paul is ticked off. Saul, Paul, Romans were weird with names. Paul's ticked off. In fact, at the end of chapter 15, this one thing with John Mark leaving is going to cause Barnabas and Paul to, to part ways. They're going to they're take different journeys because of John Mark. What I love about Barnabas is he just seems to trust the process. I don't think he was okay with it. But I think there was a sense in Barnabas of like, he's leaving. Dang it. Let's pray for him. I think he'll be back. And why? Because I think he was a, a farm kid. I think he grew up growing vines. I think he just knew stuff's grown on that. It might not look great, great now, but we can graft some things in. It'll grow. We just need to tend to it a little bit. That's what Barnabas would have been like. Ultimately, as they finish out this journey, they're going to head up to Pisidian Antioch. Very confusing how many Antiochs we have. It's kind of like Peoria. Those are just kind of everywhere, it seems like. Um, and one really cool thing that you can catch in this particular map is this region that they're going to is the region of Galatia. Just for fun, the very first letter that Paul is going to end up writing to churches to encourage them is a letter to the churches of Galatia. I think he's picking up on a note that he's learning from his wine farmer friend. You don't just plant seeds and walk away. You tend to them over and over and over. Give me that next map there, Corbin. This is the whole journey. This is Acts 13 and 14. What I want you to know in this is that they're starting in Antioch. They're going to go through Cyprus all the way up and down. They're going to get to Derby, and then they're just going to turn right back around and go back to all these places where they've just been. Now, to make sure you understand the gravitas of this, every place that they've left, they've left because their lives have been threatened. <laughs> it's not a place you're probably going to want to return to. Unless you're a wine farmer and you don't just plant a seed and leave it. You go back and you tend to it. Even at cost to yourself. Barnabas, who'd taken this young Saul or Paul under his wing, is beginning to teach him, hey, as we're sharing the best news in the world, people are important. We've got to care for them. We've got to make sure that they have all that they need. Love that. Post-COVID, there's a lot of folks, I think, who have asked, why church? I think Barnabas, as a character, would look at those folks totally bewildered, me included. He would say, how else can you get anything to grow if you don't visit the farm? How will you ever grow if you're not planted in the vineyard? The vines that grow the best for wine are the ones that are tended to by the vintner. You gotta be in the valley. You gotta be where the vines are. And you don't make wine from one vine. You make it from a whole vineyard, lots of grapes together. That's what God always wanted for the church, from his family, that they would be together. That was purposeful. 
And wine that's not just from one particular cluster, but a blend of a whole farm, a whole vineyard, that's, that's wine. That's the best wine. It just tastes better. So why the church? I think if you find a church of people who are pursuing the person of Jesus, you'll find people like Barnabas, people who understand process, people who give second chances, who walk alongside you as you grow, people who aren't trying to force you into a mold, but who are eager to see what unique vintage is growing in your life, what you will produce, people who will vouch for progress they see in people like a young assassin Saul, or willing to say farewell to somebody like a John Mark, trusting that he'll be back. Why church? Of all the teachings of Jesus, I think I have an idea of the one that Barnabas would have loved the absolute most, the one that he would come back to and read over and over and over again. He had it memorized. It was John 15. It goes like this. I am the true vine. This is Jesus talking. My father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. You've already been cleansed by the word that I've spoken to you. So abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit because apart from me, you can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. One thing that we miss in the English language as we read a passage like that is that in the, in the English, we hear you, you, you over and over and over again. And we think pretty individualistically because we're Western about it. In the Greek, that's a plural you. I'm the vine. Y'all are the branches. Y'all abide in me. Following Jesus is a corporate exercise. And yes, there are individual components to it. But why church? It's because this is what Jesus taught, that it is us abiding in him together in community. That's what's going on in this story. If you remain in me, I will remain in y'all. How the world sees Jesus, yes, is through you as an individual. Jesus taught that the most it would be through us as a community. How does Barnabas' story then end? He ends up breaking up with Paul for the sake of John Mark, another young dude who he just knew. There's stuff growing in him. I'm going to keep tending to him. I'm not giving up. Barnabas would go on to make a huge mistake in how he treats people. That's recorded in the book of Acts. We'll get to that later. Then he apologizes, and he owns it, and he gets back on track. The end of his life is curious. Uh, He's killed for his faith, talking about Jesus. 
in a place called the island of Cyprus, back in his hometown, tending to the vines that he'd planted. I think, most importantly, Barnabas shows us this practical picture of what God is like. Some of us have grown up with pictures of God like he's a judge, like there's this black and white and you need to choose the right way and if you don't, he's just so ready to smack his gavel. Some of us have grown up with this vision of God as a blacksmith that he's pounding away at us, that he's forcing us into some mold, that he's trying to turn us into something useful. I don't know that those are necessarily bad things, but I don't think maybe they're the best driving metaphor. Jesus and Barnabas seem to really like this other picture of God, of God as a farmer, or maybe most appropriately, as a vintner. He was patient. God is involved. He's curious and wonder-filled. He's eager to see what will happen, and he's doing all he can to nurture and tend to us. He doesn't give up even at cost to himself. He's intrigued by imperfections. Don't get me wrong, not faults, imperfections that make each of us both unique as individuals and as churches, that there's no one right way to do this year in and year out, but that there's a directionality towards goodness and beauty and truth. That's what he's interested in growing in us. That he would look at you and that you would know no matter what you've done or what's been done to you, you belong to him, that you belong with him and that he wants to bring out all the best things in you and he knows how. And further, that he's looking not just at individual vines but the whole vintage, us, bringing the best out of all of us as he tends to each of us. So I want to leave you thinking about three things as you consider all this today. Is the church something that you need to be a part of in order to practice your faith? Or do you hold to an individualism that tells you you're okay to keep doing this on your own? And if you're part of a life group, just to tee you up, one of the questions you're going to be talking about this week is, what does it mean to be a part of a church? In our context today, are we doing it? Are we doing a good job? And I would love your feedback on that. Second thing, are you patient with yourself? God is this vintner who is in it for the process, for the tending, not as much for the microwaves. that He's not as much into microwaves as he is into seasons. Do you give yourself that same room for growth? Or do you get discouraged when you're not growing faster, that you don't see yourself growing enough, that you haven't arrived where you thought you should be? What if you're exactly in the process where he wants you to be? If there's growth of any kind, it seems to me that you might be on the right track. And the third thing, are you patient with those around you? Followers of Jesus, people who aren't following Jesus, are you willing to invest your life in people? Do you have a Saul or a John Mark that you're tending to? Is the church a place that you enjoy tending to? Do we care to wait for people? Do we care to be patient, to tend to them, to trust the end result rather than only what we can see right in the moment? If God, the Father, is the vine grower, can we trust his timing enough to actually join him in the work ourselves 
in each other and in our church family. I'm going to bring out the band as I finish with one last thing. I think Barnabas got it. I think he practiced that kind of life personally, not only as a kid with some grapes, but as an adult with people. He's the type of person you'd want to grab a coffee with or a glass of wine, someone you'd want to be like, and he's right here in the story for you to watch, for you to get to know, for you to emulate. He would say to you, just like he would say to his protege, Paul, follow me as I follow Jesus. We're about to sing some songs that really highlight this idea of God as king. And while you can picture flowing robes and crowns, I think sometimes in our modern context, we picture the ruler of our kingdom living far away in Washington, D.C. He's not really all that involved. Kings feel like pretty faraway figures. I want you to picture a king who has dirt under his fingernails, who has a kingdom of a vineyard, and a people who are his vines. As you sing, you may even want to consider, how have I been growing? Where have I been stubborn to grow? Where is he inviting me to grow? And know that he's involved, that he's nurturing you now. He's tending to you all week this week. And finally, revel in the vineyard all around you that together as your voice joins in the chorus of everyone standing here, there is a we to this thing that is deeply meaningful and purposeful. You were not designed to do this alone. Life, church, all built to be in community. We need each other to do what Jesus has invited us to do. And man, is it just so easy to savor and enjoy it. So as we sing, maybe with a weathered smile on your face as you consider this man Barnabas, let's join voices together and worship this king who loves to tend. Let's stand and sing.